Gregory Copley is our guest on Geopolitics and Empire, historian and strategic analyst. He's worked at the highest levels of government around the world and is a member of the Order of Australia. He is the founder of Defense and Foreign Affairs. We'll be discussing the current global civilizational crisis, the U.S.-China rivalry, issues such as civil war in America, and the coming economic crisis and what lays beyond. It's great to have you on the program, Mr. Copley. Wonderful to be with you and, and share your uh, thoughts, uh, thoughts with your audience. Now, before we begin, I would like to tell listeners that uh, your work is of extremely high uh, intellectual and geopolitical quality and, and rigor. It's profound, it's systematic, and it has great foresight. You know, I've only come across your work uh, relatively recently, and you know, a number of your articles and books uh, that you've written are quite prescient in their forecasts. Uh, you know, uh, something I'm, on my mind a few years ago, you wrote about a brewing second uh, U.S. type of civil war, and we can see that unfolding uh, as we speak. So, Mr. Copley, you say we are on the brink of a, I might say, once-in-a-century civilizational crisis uh, and shift. The economic and political model we've had since World War II uh, seems to be spent uh, or finished. You've said it's the end of the age of consumerism. You describe the struggle of our time being between nationalists and city-state globalists or globalist utopianism. Um, you know, I might define nationalists. You, you'll help us out with this, but I might define nationalists as people who prefer perhaps a more rural, traditional, cultural, moral, religious, and political order, while globalism seems to be associated with a borderless, uh, liberal, progressive tell me if I'm wrong, culturally Marxist quality. Uh, the National Review recently wrote about the de-urbanization of uh, America and the mutual disdain between the rural conservatives and the progressive city dwellers. You state the globalists are ready to see the destruction of the nation before they will allow the defeat of their city-states. So can you tell us, so <laughs> help us make sense of this struggle? Well, yes. In fact, the old uh, delineations of left and right uh, have basically been lost uh, as we move into this new era. Uh, certainly, it's uh, a trend or a cycle which uh, comes periodically into human civilization. Uh, City-states rise, uh, and at some stage, when they get into trouble, they lose their efficacy because they lose their lines of supply, uh, and uh, it once again reinforces the the, the, the nation state. And we've seen this since um, ancient times, particularly with the rise of Philip of Macedon, for example, uh, when he couldn't uh, get any respect or, or understanding with the Hellenistic city-states of Athens, Sparta and the like. Uh, and and uh, so he, he abandoned the United Nations of that time, the Amphictyony of Delphi, and just swept it all aside. He realized that he had the, uh, the sources of food uh, under his control. He had the manpower and he had the mobility and he basically swept aside the city-states and created a uh, an empire at that point. Uh, but we saw it again in the uh, medieval period uh, with the collapse of the city-states in the Italian peninsula uh, with uh, the, the prince, uh, Duke Valentinois, uh, who was the, the subject of uh, Machiavelli's book, The Prince, also working with the King of France to sweep away uh, the city-states and, and start to create a, a greater sense of, of nationhood. This, so this happens cyclically and periodically throughout history. Uh, and, it's, and it's basically, uh, as wealth uh, grows, cities also tend to grow 
Uh, along with that, uh, cities want free trade, open trade, uh, and that's fine as long as there's peace. But once the cycles change uh, and the, uh, the economics change with them, uh, then people start to revert to nationalism. So what we saw after an almost unprecedented uh, 70 or so years uh, of the linear growth of economics and, uh, and progress in many forms, the growth of population, uh, the growth of wealth, the growth of caloric intake globally, uh, as long as that was continuing to rise, uh, things tended to be pretty much under control, uh, even though you had an east-west divide, uh, the Soviet, uh, if you like, communist capitalist divide, uh, to, to oversimplify it, uh, things still went fairly well because you had what was uh, the progression of the Westphalian uh, rules-based world order, which had become codified rigidly after World War II and with the creation of the United Nations. And the United Nations tr tried to put a permanent creation in place, a permanent framework of nation states, which uh, was being built up of former colonies and uh, former powers uh, so that every state had a, a sovereign character to it, uh, and that was going to be that. The reality, of course, is that history doesn't allow for that kind of permanence of borders, of, uh, of society and the like. So that was bound to end at some stage. And what we saw with uh, the end of World War II and the, and the creation, if you like, of this new framework we did see massive increases in productivity. We saw uh, uh, the overwhelming move towards urbanization of populations, particularly with returning troops from World War II. Um, and that started the divide. We saw an increase in wealth, but urbanization and wealth uh, generate one very specific byproduct, and that is it reduces reproduction rates among human societies. So we saw the initial period uh, the baby boom generation, my generation, uh, was created after World War II. So we had this expansion of the global population from two and a half billion in 1950 to uh, 7.6, 7.8 billion today, going on for 8 billion. Uh, and at the same time, we, uh, defying the Club of Rome, we saw an increase in agricultural productivity. So we were able to feed an increasingly growing population. So people began to eat better almost universally. Yes, there were pockets of poverty, but we saw uh, across the board widespread improvements in caloric intake uh, as, as food became readily available. We saw the population soaring. We saw wealth soaring. Uh, and that was really the byproduct of urbanization and, and open trade and so on that we saw after World War II. Now, all very well, but with the end of the baby boom generation, we saw that they hadn't that, that generation had not replaced itself. So we saw the plateauing of populations throughout Eurasia, Australasia, North America, and the like, um, and South America. So almost everywhere but India and Africa, we saw populations begin to level off and start their decline. Africa and India will start their decline in probably 10 to 20 years, but they're already plateauing. We're seeing smaller family sizes and the like uh, taking place as, as wealth grows in India particularly and as urbanization grows in Africa. So what we're seeing is that the whole economic model of the post-World War II era is now ending. Uh, the, the economic model was based on growing market size and growing and, and con constantly growing wealth. Well, if you have a decline in 
market size rather than a growth in it, if you have a decline in wealth rather than a growth in it, it this starts to interact and spiral downwards. Uh, you, you have this compounded by a number of if you like man-made interventions, as we've seen in the People's Republic of China, where you, you had wealth outstripping resources. So the People's Republic of China, uh, with 20% of the world's population and only 7% of the world's water, uh, finds itself in a dilemma, compounded by the reality that the Great Leap Forward under Mao Zedong uh, actually ruined much of the, the agricultural productivity of, of uh, China uh, by the, the waste going into the into the water, sh uh, water table. Uh, you have a decline in the uh, snowfall on the Tian Shan mountain range, which means a decline in water going into the Chinese aquifers. Uh, so you have this situation where with only 7% of the world's water and 20% and of its population, that water which was available is of declining quality. The Chinese government, the PRC government, says that, that, that only 25% of its water is, is potable. The reality is it's much worse than that. Uh, they, uh, the, uh, their water pollution levels are around 70 to 80% of their water supply. Their farmlands are polluted. So you have the People's Republic of China now distorting the global picture even more, having first uh, pulled in much of the world's manufacturing uh, so that it became a great source of, of uh, the world's supply, now finds itself extremely vulnerable. Uh, its main requirement now is to import food. We've never seen a nation state or an empire so existentially vulnerable to imported food uh, since the Roman Empire. So China is very vulnerable and it, it will have to do something serious to, to rectify that. It can't remediate its polluted soils fast enough to grow enough food for the, for the country. So it's, uh, it's stuck with the, the imported foods. Yes, it will try to remediate its water supply and remediate its lands, but it, that's a long-term process. It will require massive amounts of energy. Uh, so there'll be a major energy consumer uh, and that'll be oil, coal, nuclear, uh, anything that they can get their hands on, and they're working hard on that. But uh, the water situation is, is something which is very difficult to remediate. Uh, more than half of the rivers in China uh, in the past 30, 40 years have dried up. So China has half the number of rivers it had, major rivers, that it had uh, you know, in, the, in recent decades. So the, the, the problem gets worse and worse and worse. Of course, with its population as well, Chinese population, as with the rest of the world, is starting to decline in its core population. But what population remains, of course, is ageing, so that you have this situation of lowering productivity and the like within the People's Republic of China. So you've got this really existential problem, which is causing the People's Republic of China to say, uh, well, the Communist Party of China, say, what do we do about this? How do we solve this situation? Uh, it looks as though, as from Xi, President Xi's point of view, uh, the PRC cannot achieve its goals of strategic competition with the United States. The United States has got its own set of problems, and we'll discuss those. But the reality is uh, the PRC uh, is in real trouble. Its GDP, which has been artificially stimulated to give the appearance of growth for the past decade is in is actually hollow and in a strategic or substantive decline so for the prc the option 
of strategic competition only is possible if they cause the economies of the United States and its allies to go to decline. So in other words, the, this strategic race, this new total war of the 21st century, a very different type of total war from the uh, 19th and 20th century total wars, uh, is one which is not a race to the top, it's a race to avoid being first to the bottom. So uh, the result is, of course, that uh, the Communist Party of China is actively uh, attempting to uh, take advantage of the COVID-19 epidemic, which created a global fear pandemic, because that actually started to accelerate the decline of Western economies. Um, how temporary or how long that will last in the West is anybody's guess at this stage. There are certainly uh, methods to, to, to sustain and revive the economies, but the massive damage has been done. Massive long-term debt has been created, which re requires servicing, uh, and that's going to provide a dilemma for most of the world's states. So you've got a, a, a very interesting situation now where 2020 has become the watershed year, uh, spelling the end of uh, the old way of thinking of, of the old economics. We're moving to a, an era of new economics, which is going to be have, have to be defined by uh, declining uh, population size, de declining wealth, uh, and the ability to extrapolate real estate, real property, uh, as a source of credit is going to become more and more difficult, largely because uh, with declining populations uh, and, and, and declining real value, we got, um, real money value, we're going to see a decline in the value of urban real estate. And urban real estate arguably has been the underpinning of all credit-based growth in the, in the 20th century. So we see uh, that uh, we, we're moving in some respects back more toward a cash-based economy uh, than, than going, as we had been going, into that extrapolation into uh, forms of credit-based economies. Arguably, 20, 30, 40 years ago, you had a limited numbers of ways of defining money supply. But today, uh, you've got money supply defined by all manner of abstracts, most of which cannot be controlled by governments. They're, they're leveraging futures and the like. But absent a, a real underpinning of asset value, it's going to be more and more difficult to, to engage in the extrapolation of credit. So, so we're going to move more back to, back more to a, 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 I won't say a cash-based economy, but a, a, something which is similar to a cash-based economy, something which is far more direct, which means also we're going to move back into a bilateralization of trade more than a multinationalization of, of trade because people are going to go into trusted mechanisms. They'll go more, as we did 30, 40 years ago, into such things as barter and counter-trade uh, so that states... Uh, we'll be we, looking at more uh, how they bilateralize their trade. You know, we've got X resources, you've got Y resources, let's exchange them. So you, you, you get back to that ancient system, if you like, of, um, of getting what you need to survive. So is this a good thing or a bad thing? It doesn't really matter because it's what's going to happen and it happens cyclically throughout history. Uh, and as we see with all phases of history, 
when economies become uncertain and when security becomes uncertain, uh, people react in, in a predictable way. Uh, there's a great res uh, resurgence, a return to uh, identifying with your roots, with your nation state, with your family, your clan, your society, your language and your cultures. This is, um, in, in a sense, uh, you, you, you circle your, uh, your family with, with protective means. So we're, we're seeing this return to nationalism. Now, um, the urban utopianists uh, who say that they're free marketeers and they want global trade and free trade, don't understand that what's led us to this position, in fact, has been free trade. Um, and I like free trade as well. But the, the reality is that there's no such thing as free trade any more than there is such a thing as free love. Every action has consequences and responsibilities. And what we saw in the past 20 years as we, we, we moved free trade into, it, if you like, its extreme form was that the People's Republic of China was able to gather all control by by being the supplier of everything that everybody needed. Uh, so as a result, with free trade, dependent nations lost their sovereignty. Uh, and then the, and you add to that a number of other dimensions, such as the, the, the movement of capital over to, towards China, capital, uh, China reinvesting that capital in some of its trading partners like Australia or the United States or Europe and so on. So you had this movement, free trade led to something which was a decidedly unfree outcome, a central power which basically controlled the sovereignty of its lesser trading partners. Now, um, when the panic hits and when the collapse starts to occur economically in the People's Republic of China, as is, as is the case now, uh, you start to see this scurrying around as people trying to redress the situation. Uh, what the COVID-19 uh, epidemic has caused with the panic uh, is this insistence that people return to domestic manufacture of essential commodities like pharmaceuticals and the like. Now, what, what we've seen, though, with the, the People's Republic of China, having got, achieved that great strategic leverage, they paid a great price for that because they didn't address their food shortages quickly enough. And, and I made the comment about 20 years ago that uh, that it was obvious that the Communist Party of China had put its uh, food uh, sovereignty on the back burner while they concentrated on gaining uh, manufacturing dominance and economic growth. And they got it, but they didn't address their food shortages. So now, ironically, it's the more primitive powers, if you like, uh, uh, or, or powers which can use a more primitive, coercive uh, tool, like the United States, like Brazil, like Australia, New Zealand, and the like, uh, and to a degree, Russia, they can say, look, we can supply you uh, the agricultural goods. So all of a sudden, the leverage moves from the manufacturing sector to the food production sector. So this really changes the global strategic dynamic. Now, uh, People's Republic of China does not want or cannot afford to see the collapse of food supply from the United States, which is why uh, when President Trump indicated that, that he was about to start a trade war with Beijing, Beijing collapsed immediately. It didn't look like it was collapsing immediately. They started to negotiate, they started to threaten and bully, but they found that there was no other source for the quantity of food stuff they needed to import. And even then, when they came back and signed the trade deal on January the 15th in 2020, 
they were demanding actually that the United States double its supply of food to, to the People's Republic of China, which probably the United States can't achieve anyway. So uh, China is now scrambling to, to, to find sources of food uh, for, for the country and also finding ways to speed up, if you like, the uh, movement of Chinese people outside of China because uh, population growth there uh, does not give them enough benefit to warrant uh, the, the cost of that. So you, you see now uh, probably 10 to 20 million Chinese people in Africa. During the height of the European colonization there, there were probably a couple of million at the most, one, one million, two million people. So you, you see China being now the dominant feature in Africa. But as Africa starts to go into economic decline for, another, for a variety of reasons right now, they're finding that China is not a good partner. They're stuck with this big Chinese population, <clears throat> but China is not providing the material support which is going to save a lot of the African countries. South Africa is at the point of disintegration, for example, and a lot of other African countries aren't getting the benefit they thought they would get from Beijing. Beijing offered them the one thing that the West didn't offer them, which was money without criticism. Uh, but now I think they're yearning for the days when a little more discipline in their uh, economic sectors would, would be welcome because we're seeing widespread problems uh, starting to emerge in Africa. I'm sorry, I've been covering too many yeah. things. At one, yeah, I was one just point. going to, uh, regarding the economic situation, we have a lot of people saying that, you know, this is going to be, Worse, uh, much worse than the 1929 Great Depression, and um, I guess we'll, we'll we'll see as it's un unfolding. And as well, so I mean, how how bad can the economic situation generally, globally, get? And you know, you mentioned historical cycles. Can this spiral um, lead to a, a, a military conflict somehow, as we've seen in past uh, history? Yeah. Well, uh, while it's cyclical, none of the cycles actually ever mirrors the earlier cycles identically. So what we're about to see, uh, in some respects, may be worse than the 1929 uh, crash, it, it, but in some other areas, it may be much better. Uh, so it, it's, it's hard to determine how that's going to be. The big problem is going to be not whether, for example, uh, most of the, the great granaries of the world, whether it's uh, Central Asia or the United States or Australia or, or Russia uh, can grow enough food, that's, that's the easy part. The hard part is how do you get monetary instruments uh, there which will enable it to become viable for a farmer to be able to grow his food, pay for his fertilizer, pay for his, his staff and so on, uh, and then get a truck driver who's, you know, can be somehow rewarded for spending his time and money. So, so in other words, the monetary instruments become more and more critical. So keeping faith in, in currencies is going to be uh, of a critical nature, particularly as we move back to a situation where people are really going to be looking at the, the trustworthiness of the, the instruments of payment. So, uh, so that's going to be the great thing, not, not whether or not we can produce the goods or produce the food, but whether we can actually see the, these uh, goods moving to, to market. Uh, now, will this lead to military conflict? Well, it invariably does. Uh, what we do see, however, from uh, Beijing is that 
military confrontation with the United States is the last thing it wants. Uh, it, need, it would need to substantially degrade US military capabilities uh, to be in a position where it could dare challenge the US on a significant scale. Yes, they have a, 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 a PRC has a significant defensive capability to protect its shores. I mean, the United States is not about to invade and, and, uh, and PRC has probably made sure that it couldn't. The reality is, though, that uh, for the PRC to get what it needs uh, and to reinvigorate its, uh, its trade zone and to coerce its Belt and Road Initiative partners into, uh, uh, into a, a trading situation with, with, which is dependent on Beijing, that's going to be the difficult thing, and they will definitely try to use military capabilities on that. But the question is, uh, can the PRC sustain the growth in the, in the People's Liberation Army, and can it degrade the U.S. economic position to the point where the U.S. cannot itself uh, sustain its own carrier strike groups and its own long-range uh, penetration? And a lot of this is about symbolism, because... Uh, to, to coerce trading partners, it's about f uh, power projection. Uh, now, we see this uh, in recent weeks where the People's Republic of, uh, of China's PLA Navy have deployed the Liaoning, the, the, um, it's one really viable carrier at this stage, um, not really a good one, but they're, they're using it as, as a force projection tool to show the flag, saying that the United States can't do it at the, at the moment with their own uh, supercarriers because uh, of the COVID-19 uh, damage to the efficacy of the U.S. naval fleet. Uh, so it's it's a short-term attempt by Beijing to, to project power without having to risk uh, a hot war because a hot war would be disastrous for the PRC, just as uh, a hot war was disastrous for Japan when it was faced with a similar uh, curtailment of its economic uh, expansionism. Uh, and, and arguably that was a miscalculation. And what we saw in October 2018 was that uh, when the, the PRC knew it was at a turning point, when it knew it had to really, if you like, go global or collapse, uh, President Xi, the defence minister, and a lot of other Chinese officials declared war on the United States. They said this is the start of the new 30 years war with the United States. Very, very profound and significant thing. And this was designed to end in 2049, uh, the 100th anniversary of the PLA's uh, occupation of, of mainland China. So it would have been a symbolic date. Uh, and uh, as she said specifically at that time, this will end with a new piece of Westphalia, a new world order, because that new world order would be defined by Beijing and it would write the new global rules of engagement, the, you know, the, the new world, uh, rules-based world order that would be under Beijing's terms. Uh, Beijing quite rightly noted that the rules-based world order, which, which, which was instilled in 1945, really left Beijing out of the equation. So uh, now, uh, that statement alarmed a number of people in Washington. There was never widespread uh, knowledge that the PRC had made that announcement. But it, uh, it caused the U.S. to start waking up and thinking that it had to respond very significantly to the threat from uh, the PRC, that the PRC 
it was determined to bring down uh, the US. And in fact, uh, what she and the defense minister told domestic Chinese military audiences particularly was, uh, well, if the, if the United States is wise, it will just accept that we are inevitably, inevitably going to be the global hegemon by 2049 and just accept it without fighting. Well, that hopes a nice thing, but it's not a strategy. And of course, the US did not respond that way. And what was clear was that you know, after we actually translated and, and publicized these statements by the key uh, PRC officials, including Xi Jinping, was that these comments, which had been meant for the Communist Party cadres and the, and the military leadership, uh, and not for external viewing, uh, that they re re realized that this has got out of hand and that, that it backfired. So what we saw uh, starting by the end of 2018 and early 2019 was the PLA political department trying to erase all rec record of that of those statements from uh, from open uh, sources, open websites and the like. But we did uh, manage to get it all and, and it's quite clear that the uh, Communist Party of China is adhering to its goal of of a, a pivotal and fateful strategic confrontation with the US and its allies. Now, this is based on a playbook written in 1999, a book which you've obviously referred to in the past in your uh, work. Uh, the book's called Unrestricted Warfare. It was written by two PLA uh, senior colonels, one-star generals in, in effect. Uh, and that's a very effective look at how the world was shaping up. And in fact, uh, it, it fits with my studies, which we're coming out in a new book this year on total war in the 21st century, which is that we are moving into this era of total war in a way in which total war has not been seen before. Uh, total war uh, in the 19th century under Napoleon was this absolute uh, domination of uh, a warfare encompassing all of the assets of a, of a state against all of the assets and resources of an opposing state. Uh, World Wars I and II saw that uh, further exemplified, and we saw in 1935, for example, uh, General Erich von Ludendorff, um, uh, who dominated the general staff of the Germany in, in World War I, he wrote the book in 1935, Total War, uh, which was designed to help Hitler uh, fight the next war. Uh, but in fact, it was not nearly as comprehensive as it should have been. And we saw another Viennese scholar, uh, Dr. Stefan Personi, who I started working with in 1972, uh, wrote a, a book from Vienna, uh, basically on the economics of total war, which really broad, broadened the concept of total war from Ludendorff's uh, very narrow perspective. And that actually was the decisive way in which Total War evolved, particularly from a US standpoint, uh, in World War II. But the reality is that uh, even Pastoni's view of total war has transformed because of technology uh, into the 21st century. We're now seeing total war as an amorphous, uh, an amorphous kind of warfare embracing all of society because uh, all of society is now engaged through this, this horizontal hierarchy or horizontal communications, uh, if you like, uh, so that we're actually able to exert enormous sociological and demographic and economic power through clicks on the 
on, the, on, our, on our computer uh, to, to drive economics and markets and the like, and to drive politics because uh, it, it's, it's, made, it's, it's meant that populism is now uh, something which is defined uh, by social media. Uh, the, we, we see the urban, uh, the urban left, for want of a better word, uh, decrying the rise of, of regional nationalism as being populist. But in fact, it's this urban-driven um, peer um, social media, which is the, is the true uh, populist political momentum. So, so we're seeing this incredible transformation in the way uh, the total war is being fought in the 21st century. And uh, as my new book emphasizes, this war began uh, literally in the first decade of the 21st century, but 2020 is the real break point, if you like, the, um, the inflection point for how this war is now being formally embraced. And governments are not in total control. That's what's so interesting about it. And and the more that you see governments trying to exert control over the process, which is what's going on in the management of the post-COVID-19 crisis, uh, the more that, that it's, it becomes less and less efficient. Now, what we saw uh, in the last months of, of 2019 and, and now into 2020, um, the Russian government has uh, identified the reality that 80% of conflict is not military. Nonetheless, the Russian government felt that the only center or centralizing tool of conducting strategic warfare into the future was through the Russian general staff. So you have people, if you like, in charge of Russian global strategic response who are military, and of course, military people tend to think in terms of military solutions to, to challenges. Um, the old adage, if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So uh, the reality is though, that the Chinese have begun much more broadly. They realize that they do not have the military superiority that they would like or that they require. Therefore, they are putting social movements, demographics and social movements and ideology and psychological warfare and the like, psychopolitical warfare, uh, in the forefront of their conduct of, of, the, of their new total war. And that's why they've worked so effectively to penetrate the US political situation. Uh, that Nothing is more critical to the PRC's survival or should I say the survival of the Communist Party of China in charge of mainland China, nothing is more important to that than getting Donald Trump out of the White House in the November U.S. presidential elections. Now, I had a question. So that was kind of my next question. I want to look at the U.S. because, I mean, so you described China and economic problem there. Uh, in your book, you also described how this type of globalism or a Soviet form of this uh, glo globalism ran through Soviet Russia, and it took about seven decades for the Russian nationalists to take back their country. And so then looking at the U.S., so what's happening in the U.S., U.S. also has this, this huge economic crisis that's now uh, unfolding. And you know, maybe it will be felt even worse uh, in, the, in the U.S., but someone else that I think about uh, as you discuss these things is Neil Howe, who co-authored The Fourth Turning in, in 1997. Mm -hmm. And he wrote that uh, sometime before the year 2025, America will pass through a great gate in history 
uh, one commensurate with the American Revolution, Civil War, Great Depression, World War II. The risk of catastrophe will be high. The nation could erupt into insurrection or civil violence, crack up geographically or succumb to uh, authoritarian rule. Other preeminent guests uh, that have been on this podcast, such as uh, Johan Galtung, have echoed some of these sentiments. Uh, and you mentioned uh, something you also mentioned. Um, we have Silicon Valley uh, uh, and big tech that are tacitly, you know, uh, under people call it like the, the chai comms or uh, tacitly somehow connected to China as well as the Demo Democratic Party mm -hmm. uh, in the U.S. So can you talk a little bit more about, you know, what's happening in the U.S., this divide between the nation and why China uh, really doesn't want to see Trump uh, reelected? Well, uh, when President Trump came into office, and even the months before he, he came in after the election in, in uh, 2016, uh, President Trump made it clear that he was not going to uh, allow the People's Republic of China to encroach into US or Western strategic space uh, unfettered. Now, uh, uh, earlier, uh, President Obama and before that, President George W. Bush had both, and along with, of course, the Clinton administration, had both said, well, we, we don't care. China can do what it wants. We're not going to get in the way. And, and, and then, in fact, Beijing uh, or the Communist Party of China had a free ride from that point onwards. So uh, I, I, there's no question that they expected that free ride to continue uh, if Hillary Clinton had been elected. But President Trump, uh, President-elect Trump in 2016, uh, November, December, um, sent signals to the PRC, well, that's not going to exactly happen. So he, he had that phone conversation uh, with President Tsai Ing-wen uh, of the Republic of China, Taiwan, uh, which really alarmed uh, Beijing. And, uh, and basically, uh, because of its, it, it's the CPC's links with Jared Kushner had been investing in China. They thought, well, this is the president's sign-law. We can get to the president. And, and they, in fact, through uh, Jared Kushner, insisted that uh, President Xi be given a, a formal invitation to visit the United States. They had seen the first visit to the United States under the Trump administration was uh, Prime Minister Abe, uh, Shinzo Abe of Japan. And President uh, Abe, as Prime Minister Abe had come to the White House, and then had been received down at Mar-a-Lago, the, the president's uh, um, Florida estate. So uh, the, the mark of going being invited to uh, the president's private estate was seen as a prestigious thing. So President Xi said, well, I want to come over, I want to be invited over, and I want to, you know, have, but I have to go to Mar-a-Lago. So um, the first signal that President Trump sent him after the the two other shots across the bow, which was the talk with President Tsai and the meeting with uh, Prime Minister Abe. Yes, he invited uh, Xi to the United States, but he invited him only to Mar-a-Lago and not to the White House. Uh, so President Xi became a little uneasy with that. And certainly as a result of that first meeting uh, there, understood that President Trump was not about to let US primacy in the Pacific uh, be eroded any further. Um, and uh, so that meant that the initial attempts by China to have the Belt and Road Initiative become its driving force uh, as, a, as an economic, if you like, uh, force projection by Beijing, uh, that, that, that was going to change. In those days, you might recall, it was called the One Belt, One Road 
uh, authority. Well, what was clear to Xi by about May 2017 was that there was going to be another Belt and Road Initiative, and it was going to be run by Russia, Japan, and the United States, and Korea. It was going to start driving a second uh, trade route across uh, northern Eurasia, which would enable South Korea, Japan, uh, the Republic of China, and so on, to trade with Europe without being held up in the South China Sea and having to go through the Indian Ocean and the Suez Canal. They were going to have rapid delivery of, of goods across to, to Europe and to the Atlantic coast uh, through the second Belt and Road. So that was when one Belt, one Road was changed uh, to the Belt and Road Initiative. We have to bear in mind that the Belt and Road Initiative, or, or One Belt, One Road, were really not just about uh, economic programs for Beijing. The Belt and Road Initiative is, if you like, financial Maoism. One thing about the modern Communist Party of China, they've recognized that nobody wants to hear the, the trite cliches of Maoism and Marxism. So they modernized it, they made it transactional. They, they started saying, well, you know, we'll give you money if you trade with us and you, you allow us the access through your country and give us rights and the like. So, so basically, Beijing then started to use its economic power to expand influence and to build, yes, certainly to build uh, uh, lines of, of uh, supply, logistical lines, but it was about capturing, owning the, the people in charge of governments. So yeah, we're not, they're, they're saying, we're, we're not going to bother about boring you with Maoism because you probably don't understand anyway, we don't care. We just want you to commit heart and soul to Beijing. So we're going to buy that. Which meant that, that Beijing made a lot of very, very uneconomic investments, which uh, appealed to the materialism, if you like, in the target countries uh, and, the, and certainly the personal greed of those uh, politicians in, for example, the Solomon Islands and, and uh, Vanuatu and so on, and uh, Kiribati that were bribed to do things, and, the, and for that matter, the politicians in Australia who, who took the Chinese money or Europe uh, or others uh, who they could make common cause with, for example, the New York Times. I mean, the New York Times is so rabidly anti-Trump that it sees Beijing as a partner in getting rid of Trump. So they, again, do the bidding, if you like, of, of, uh, of Beijing uh, because they think that, you know, we've got common cause in getting rid of Trump and we'll deal with China separately later. The reality is that China is getting what it wants out of it uh, and the New York Times probably won't and the Democratic Party for that matter. But not all the people in the Democratic Party agree with this. They, they are greatly concerned by the encroachment of the PRC into traditional US sovereignty in certain areas. So it, it becomes a, a confused situation. As I say, it's amorphous warfare. It's not clean cut. It's not purely military. Um, so Beijing is going to be reluctant to use military force. It certainly doesn't want to see the uh, Liaoning carrier battle group ever coming up against the US carrier battle group. Yes, they each have certain advantages depending where they are. If they're within a thousand nautical miles of the Chinese coast, then absolutely the Chinese can use land-based anti-carrier uh, technologies against the US, but that the Chinese aren't going to, the PLA Navy is not about to project the Liaoneng out of the Central Pacific anytime soon.
How do you see this um, civil war in the U.S.? I mean, so far it hasn't hasn't become very violent, but how do you see it resolving? Uh, I think in your book you, you've said, I mean, we I don't think we'll see like an 1860s type yeah. civil war. But I mean, how, how do you see things in, in the near future? Yeah, it, it, what we're seeing, and, we've, and by the way, this is the, the same urban regional uh, divide which we're seeing, we are seeing now in Europe. We saw it in Britain. That was the, the result was Brexit, much to the astonishment of the Londoners who thought that what they thought obviously would, would be accepted by the peasants in the countryside. And, uh, and, and we see the same thinking in the United States. Uh, people in the cities regard everybody, particularly in the northeastern cities and cities like Los Angeles and San Francisco, we regard all people outside of their urban zones as being idiots. They regard them as being rednecks and misguided and therefore not worthy of consideration. Uh, they're, they're almost the subject of, of pseudo-speciation. In other words, they're not even thought of as human beings like we great urban sophisticates. Well, this, this just reinforces the polarization, of course. So you do get this breakdown and you do get it, it, uh, exhibiting itself in the polls. That was what elected Donald Trump. It may well see him re-elected this year. Uh, and it's what's, what's interesting is that we have not seen anything to sway people from either side of the voting camp. Uh, what's significant, though, is that the, the urban utopianist globalist sort of mentality doesn't permit, uh, permeate all uh, of even the great urban populations. If, the, if it had, you would have seen an even more overwhelming um, popular vote in favor of Hillary Clinton in 2016. The reality is that a lot of people in the cities still understand that they need their own hinterlands to provide them with food and resources uh, and, and the needs of, and the means of cohesion, both military and in terms of security and in terms of protection of trade routes and the like. So what we are seeing is a collapse of civil order. And, and that's quite evident if you go into Los Angeles or San Francisco these days, uh, these once pristine cities and uh, exemplars of modernism have become large slums. So uh, this is an unfortunate thing. So we're seeing this reduction, if you like, of areas of, of safety and prosperity reducing and reducing into, into almost gated communities. And that was one of the first things I, I noticed when I first moved my operations into the United States uh, about 50 years ago, I, I said, well, in 50 years, this is going to be a, a, a landmass controlled by pockets of capability um, and, and then vast areas of uh, lawlessness or wasteland. And in fact, uh, as, as we see the collapse of prosperity in the cities, we're also seeing urban areas becoming less and less safe and secure. It won't be an area where you'll see certain states arming themselves to fight against the Union, like we saw in 1861. Um, what we will see is a rise in <clears throat> secessionist conversation. 20 years ago, any talk of the secession of any state, including Texas, was seen as something which was so bizarre and heretical that it was that it rendered anybody who raised the subject as 
insane. Today, it's a commonly discussed phenomenon. Whether it'll come to pass, we don't know, because as things polarize, as the, as the global situation does start to return to nationalism, it's, pro it's possible that that could bring about some reunification of the United Kingdom, of the United States, of Australia. Or if the central government act in, the, in all of these countries act in a fashion which is autocratic, too autocratic, it might actually inspire secessionism. And Australia is a case in point there as well. Uh, you know, the secession movement in Australia, which was very strong in the, in the 1930s, particularly from Western Australia, uh, is reviving in its popularity. As we're slowly running out of time, is there anything that I haven't brought up that um, you would like to bring up that you think is very important or any final thoughts uh, for us as we move into this uh, pretty crazy 2020? Well, um, I would suggest that there, there are um, three of my books which are already out, which I think actually started projecting a lot of this activity. One was called The Art of Victory, which came out in 2006. Uh, the other one was called Uncivilization, Urban Geopolitics in a Time of Chaos, which came out in 2012, uh, and then uh, Sovereignty in the 21st Century uh, and uh, the Threat to uh, Cultures, Civilizations, Nation States and, and the like. That came out in 2018. Um, and now we've got the new one coming out on, on Total War in the 21st Century. And I think we, we start to put context in that because I, one driving thing about what we're going through now is the importance of context. Uh, people want to narrow their discussions to pure economics or purely military areas or pure technology areas. Doesn't cut it. We are moving back into an age when we need to understand context. That means not just the world around us in a global sense, but in the historical timeline as well. We need to understand the fact that what we're going through is not unknown in, in human history. Uh, and we also have to understand that empires and civilizations generally have a lifespan of about 250 years on average. Um, and the United States is about 250 years old. Rome, of course, went through this and it reinvented itself on several occasions, most particularly with the collapse of the Republic and the, and the beginning then after several decades of chaos reinvented itself as the empire and retained its vitality for another few hundred years. But the reality is that all human societal structures are life forms and therefore have a finite, finite lifespan as do all human beings. We go through the stage of youthful vigor, uh, capability, expansion, uh, energy, and we become gradually sclerotic because we age, we, have created so many institutions which govern our society and which don't, in fact, change our needs. We've become far, far too complex to change. We have too many laws in place. We can't get things done because of laws. So while rule of law uh, does inhibit uh, co uh, collapse in the short term, it also inhibits mobility. So we need to understand that. And well, that's why, as I mentioned in the beginning, uh, 
of this interview as you just described the the complex way that uh you analyze things and uh, that you, the way that you've written in your books is uh, it's it's very valuable and just like you mentioned there's a lot of authors and writers out there that focus on uh, one issue and i really like the the approach that you take uh where you're looking uh very nuanced and, and a lot of deep and systematic research um your websites uh, i believe are artofvictory.com as you mentioned uh and you said uh, dfaonline.net as well as strategicstudies.org um is there any other website that i've missed well strategicstudies.org is the one which has uh open access uh, to a lot of information uh, and we've also got a, a linkedin page for the international strategic studies association uh, the international strategic studies association is the overarching uh, non-profit which publishes defense and foreign affairs uh, when we started that uh, you know, process in 1972 with developing all this with dr stefan persani the great grand strategist so um, i'd say go to www.strategicstudies.org and uh, we can continue this discussion as well through the linkedin page always very happy to uh, to discuss these issues uh, and start to build some common understanding across the world all right um uh i would recommend again listeners check out dr copley's books uh i just finished reading sovereignty in the 21st century and i'm going to go check out go back and check out uncivilization and i look forward to to the new book uh, i believe your articles are available uh, online as well at sites such as uh, oilprice.com that's where i've been reading them so uh, them. so thank you again dr copley Thank you and it's Mr no no doctorate. Okay, sorry Mr. Copley. <laughs> Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast and interview. I would like to remind you that our website is geopoliticsandempire.com and you can sign up for our mailing list that goes out each weekend with the latest podcast and a long collection of important news headlines. It's good to sign up for the newsletter in case we experience censorship and deplatforming. You can help the Geopolitics and Empire podcast by subscribing to and interacting with all of our channels such as YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, Gab, Minds, and Steemit. You can also help us by leaving a rating and review on your favorite podcast platforms such as iTunes, Castbox, Stitcher, Spreaker, and so on. Finally, if you value our work and our mission and would like to see us continue interviewing experts from across the political spectrum, please consider leaving a one-time donation via PayPal or Bitcoin or becoming a regular monthly supporter on our Patreon. All the links can be found on geopoliticsandempire.com. Thanks for listening.